Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. The topic for this morning's study is one of our enemy's most vile strategies to making the people of God ineffective. Satan has and most often attacks us through division. However, the subject isn't quite as straightforward as citing all division is from Satan because sometimes God also uses division to save the life or the purpose of his creation. Thanks for joining us this morning as we seek to learn how to identify the differences between how God divides and how Satan schemes division. When uh, my wife and I served as missionaries overseas, uh, one of the ministries that I took on as an outreach was to reach out to the young men in the settlement where we lived. And the best way to do that was to get on their turf, to, to be where they were. Um, the Bible would call this a form of incarnation. This is what Jesus does for us. To reach us, he becomes like us. And so this is the missionary calling to you and I as well. We go and become like them. And there was another missionary that we were working with, a good friend of mine named Brad. And so he and I made about a mile long walk down from where we were staying to the basketball court, because that's where the guys were. They were on the basketball court. And one of the things that we quickly discovered is that these young men loved to blame each other for everything that could possibly go wrong on the court. And believe me, many things could go wrong. Uh, they had a lot of arrogance, and any time you dribbled off your foot, they would attack you and blame you. Every time you made a wrong pass, you were to blame, and if you thought it was the other person's fault, you would just start arguing back with them. I can remember watching a game happen where Brad and I were on one team, and we're watching these local guys start to just, just dig into each other, and it was like, it was easy as the opponent because they were destroying themselves. They, they were doing all the hard work that we weren't even having to do because as a team, they were crumbling right before our eyes. And then an interesting thing began to happen over the weeks and months that Brad and I would play with them. Um, of course, Brad and I are awesome because that's what we are. It's basketball. <laughs> but when I would make a mistake... I would raise my hand and I'd say, that was my fault. I was wrong. I, I, I made the mistake. Now, I learned this as a kid uh, growing up in Florence, watching a guy who you may know his name, Joe Kriegel. Does anyone know the name Joe Kriegel? I remember growing up watching Joe Kriegel play, and I was like a second or third grader, just a little kid. And the reason why it, it was impressive to me is because as I sat there with my parents, it was actually my mom who said she was so impressed with that young man, Joe Kriegel, because every time he committed a foul, he'd raise his hand like this so the refs knew it was him, and that was so uncharacteristic among youth. Instead, you weren't, you weren't complaining to the ref. You weren't trying to argue with the ref like they do in soccer. Don't get me started on soccer <laughs> and the arguing going on. That's not what Joe did. Joe would raise his hand. It was me. I did it. And so I watched that, and I made that a component of integrity by which I played basketball. And do you know what happened? After a few weeks and months of Brad and I playing basketball with him, because Brad would do the same thing, pretty soon these guys realized they didn't have to, like, make their own ego known of how great they were. They, they could see that the unity of the team was far better served when you owned your own mistakes. <clears throat> And there were a lot of reasons why they would argue. They'd argue because they would misunderstand one another on a play. 
The biggest problem was pride in their hearts, though. It was pride. They had to be better than anybody else on the court. And sometimes it was just easy mistakes. Church, I want you to know that the attack of the enemy will be to come and to divide us. To divide us from one another. Have you ever heard this phrase within warfare? Divide and you have. That's right. This is the devil's strategy against his people. And the places where division will show up in your life will be because of your mistakes. It will be because of your miscommunication with one another. And it will be because of pride in your own life. Now, I don't have to talk about your circumstances. I can speak to my own experience because my own sins have caused division. Sometimes words that I have said, I've had it happen in this very church where my words have been different from that which I meant to say. And the person on the other end heard it in a way that I did not intend for them to hear it. And there have been more times than I would care to tell you when pride has been the reason in my own life where I've made mistakes. Thankfully, God's grace is greater than my own sin. It's greater than my own miscommunication. It's greater than my pride. For where sin shows up, grace shows up all the more. But we need to be alert today. For your enemy is on the prowl prowl to divide us. And it took some time on that basketball team. It took actually practice for them to see that you don't have to live that way. It didn't happen overnight. It took a couple weeks. It took practice. And so, folks, are you ready this morning? That's what we're going to try to do. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture to see how the Apostle Paul is going to show forth with insight the scheme of the devil to divide But then we're going to look for the counterattack that comes from Jesus, the true king, for how you and I maintain unity in the church and how you and I need to make that a component of our Christian discipleship, of Christian practice. If you're with me on this, I invite you uh, to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. While you're turning there, we're going to begin with some preliminaries because I have to be honest with you, this was a difficult message for me to put together this week. It was difficult because there is a nature by which God has also designed division. Here's what I mean. Not all division is of the devil. There are two kinds of division. There is that division like a surgeon would see the cancer, that which does not belong, and seek to divide it such that the organism would live. And there's another kind of division, a division that leads to death. That's the kind that the devil is of. And so this is a difficult one to really parse out and nuance for division is seen in a couple of ways. So to begin with, I want to share with you Jesus's own words. Uh, This is where Jesus is being accused of working miracles by the power of Beelzebub or the power of the devil. And he says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. This is a fact. Jesus is simply stating a fact. Now, there have been times where God has used this fact for our good. And there are times where the devil also seeks to utilize this truth within God's people to do harm. So I want you to know that God has divided and God will divide. 
One of the first places we see where God divided was in the garden. Do you remember in the garden, the man and the woman sinned and God divided them from the tree of life. Again, we see later on that all the thoughts of the hearts of men were only wicked continually all the time. And so once more, God divided by sending water to cover the earth, the righteous from the unrighteous. Once more, as mankind gathered on the plain to build a tower for themselves, you heard the verse out of Deuteronomy read this morning from Jeannie, that the Lord divided the people up by their languages and cultures. Now, why does God do this? Well, the first one, if you can think, God divided the man and the woman from the tree of life where they would live forever in their sin. It was a good kind of division. The flood came to separate the righteous from the wicked. It was a good kind of division. And once more, had we been allowed to build a tower and a name for ourselves, the glory of God would, be, would have failed to be seen on the earth. And so God's division was good. This truth is one to which God uses and God will use again in the future. We are told that at the judgment there will be sheep and there will be goats. And what will God do? He will divide one from the other. And so that's part of what we're going to look at this morning. Um, I want to begin with this preliminary. God divided up the earth according to the languages and cultures and assigned spiritual governors over them. But those authorities over those people groups were revoked by the cross. This was a, a key element of our Bible study this past Wednesday. That this is what God has done through the death of Jesus. Because it is through Jesus that do you know what God is now doing? He's not dividing anymore. Do you know what God's doing? He's now drawing all peoples back together under one authority, namely the person of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the period you and I live in right now. A time of regathering. You might even know that it is with the praise of God in many languages that we see the undoing of the division of languages in Babel. That where God once divided the nations, he's now reclaiming all peoples, all tribes, all nations under one authority. And so God divides and God unites. We have the same true with the devil. I want to give you a few examples of this. Um, God will divide over interests. Uh, watch this. Uh, Paul teaches, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What would we call that? Unity or division? It'd be a kind of division. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what does fellowship and what can fellowship and light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out and be separate, says the Lord. Division. God warns you, be very careful to enter into agreements with unbelievers. You will find a differing set of values, one light and one dark. But do you know the devil also seeks to divide among interests? Watch this from, second, uh, from 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. 
The, the, the people of God wanting to come together, especially Paul, but who's working to divide? Who is it? It's the devil working to divide. Or how about even within families? This is Jesus, again, talking about division. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Here Jesus again is saying that the message of the gospel is going to be like what instrument? It's going to be like a sword. And what does a sword do? It divides. I want you to know that the attack upon families is here in this case by God one that's designed for your good. Does it feel good? Some of you know exactly what this feels like when you have members of your own home who don't believe and how very, very painful that is. I want you to know the devil also wants to divide families. This from 1 Corinthians. Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This means outside of marriage. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Does the devil want to divide families? Absolutely he does. And we're given the warning here of how to keep that from happening within the relationship of a husband and a wife. Not only families, but also over sin. This, 1 Corinthians 5 Paul says it's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you. He's speaking within the church and of a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who is doing this? What is Paul advocating here? Unity or division? It's actually a form of church discipline. It's a whole nother sermon that gets into the reason for this is restoration. But notice again, what does sin do? Sin divides. I want you to see how the devil will utilize that. This is in Ephesians 4. Do, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Any of you ever argue with your wife? Come on now, you remember those? Yeah, I could. I'm the only one up here with a microphone, so I guess I got to talk about it. Yeah, th- those are not fun nights, are they? Right? When, when I said this and you heard this and I'm right because you're wrong and whatever it is, you're not coming together. Who, who's trying to worm their way in right then? And that form of anger is not righteous. It's sin. The devil's going to look for those moments to put a foothold in order to divide. And here, here's a much harder one. This last one, I, we're, we're not even going to get anywhere near finishing the sermon for me to just talk about this next one, but division over doctrine. I only have one verse because I want you to watch for both. I want you to see what God says, and I want you to see where the devil is at work as well. Romans 16, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. 
Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Oh, gee, look at Smooth talk and flattery. Do you remember? Have we already talked about this? The devil lies in two ways. Accusation. And do you remember the other word I put in there? It's a couple weeks back. Adulation. Do you remember that word? Jeez, you're looking good today. You look good. Sound good. Boy, smell good. Don't be smelling me, please. All right, first of all. What, 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 is a lot, what is that doing? That extra butter that's being put on there. Smooth talk and flattery. Be very careful. Be very careful when you run across that. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. I I want you to see God here is also advocating for a form of division. Watch out. Watch out for people who cause division. Be very careful. And here, here's why this is, I've got to be careful with my time here this morning, but let, I'll see if I do this in 60 seconds. There's a problem with, within many churches where we decide to draw a circle line around those who are in and those who are out. And we have drawn lines where the scripture has not drawn lines. Now, there are absolutely things that are essential to the faith. Namely, and we looked at this under false teaching, they fall under the gospel, the spirit, and Jesus. If you have a different gospel, you're not a Christian. If you have a different spirit, you are not a Christian. And if you serve a different Jesus, you're not a Christian. There's a line to be drawn there. But in far, far too many churches, we have in a, in a society of opulence and ease, we have found ways to extend this line to... Can you see how I'm a little passionate about this right now? We, we, to, to extend this line into those secondary issues. Issues of eschatology. Issues of sacrament. Issues where even as I say them, some of you in here are thinking, I think that is a primary issue. Be very careful that you do not draw lines where the scripture has not drawn lines. For there are things that you can have convictions over that other fellow Christians can differ with you on. That is by God's design in many cases. And then there's an, there is an even third circle outside of that where it's just frankly opinion and preference. Be very careful that you don't make two mistakes. Number one, saying everything and anything goes and now you no longer have Christianity. Remember, there absolutely is an interior circle. And then be very careful that you don't extend that circle line so so narrow to that you're the only Christian there is in here. Be very careful with that. I want to give you a different picture. And this would be great for us to continue on a Wednesday morning. Uh, the picture the scripture gives is not a circle. Do you know what it is? It's a vine. It's a tree. That's the picture the scripture gives. That, that God has made his people such that if the trunk is good, the fruit will be good. And there are branches that extend out from that tree that God has allowed for a variety of circumstances so that the diversity that we see in the church is something we ought to celebrate in many cases. Can you tell why this is such a difficult issue for me this morning, talking about division, particularly over doctrine? So we may pick that up at a later date.
I want you to know, God was the one who first divided up the world. And he is now reclaiming the world under a single authority, Jesus Christ. Here's the rule of thumb I want to give you. Bad division divides from life. If you have a living organism like the church, and you decide to separate or divide over something that is not necessary, and that church is now going to lose part of its life, that is a bad division. Good division is that which divides from death. It's a rule of thumb that takes a lot more nuance for you and I to fully understand. But that's where we're going to begin this morning. Second Corinthians, Paul is going to be dealing with a church that frankly drives him crazy. The Corinthian church has just driven Paul to a point where he starts acting like a non-Christian. And if we, if we could, for, for time, we could look into all the areas where in his third letter, he says things like, I hope you put up with some foolishness of mine. If I'm going to talk the way some of these imposters talk, I'm going to be out of my mind, the Apostle Paul says. That's what's happening in Corinth. This letter that you and I have is actually his fourth letter. It's second Corinthians in our Bible because it comes after first, but it's actually his fourth letter. And it's the final letter where he is showing the, the resolution of the division and the difficulty that has been going on between him and the church. In chapter 2, we're going to be encountering a particular historical event that he has addressed. Now, I want you to know commentators are a little bit in disagreement over this. Some think it's a reference back to 1 Corinthians 5, a verse we talked about. Remember the man who's with his father's wife? Remember that? And he says you should put him out of the church? It absolutely could be the case that that's what he's referencing here. There's also reason to believe that it might be something that's actually more personal, like a personal attack against Paul. And we don't know. We just don't know which of the two this is. But I just want to give you a little background. As we start reading through this passage, I want you to know Paul is addressing something that has happened in the past that has been this wound. It has been this point of possible division. And I want you to see how Paul helps us to see where Satan is involved in that. You guys with me? All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has no, not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive. And comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excess sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. And found that the Lord had opened a door for me there. I still had no peace of mind. Because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And through us, 
spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the words of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Um, In this passage, if you've ever read this, I would venture to say you usually stop after verse 11. Verse 11, by the way, is the key verse for this entire series. It says, in order that Satan might not not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. That's the whole scope of our series, is to illumine our minds to the devil's schemes. But Paul then goes on to explain what those schemes actually are. Now, before we get into that, because that's an upcoming point, let let me bridge in some of the other observations that we can begin answering this question. How does the devil scheme division? Among God's people. First of all, are, you, are we all on the same page that this is one of the devil's primary attacks to try to do what with his people? We're all on the same page. This is what the devil is attempting to do to try to divide the church. How does he do this? Number one, through sin and through sorrow. The, the background of this passage is sin in the life of somebody who is unrepentant. Now, I use the past tense there. They were unrepentant. I, I hope, oh, it's hard for me to even say this, I kind of hope you have experienced this. Because if you haven't, you're going to totally misunderstand sin. Sin is like a grenade. So often we think that sin is just something that affects me. Right? Or it affects me personally. It's just my own problem, you mind your own business, that's it. But that's not what sin is. Sin is a grenade that affects everybody close to you. The shrapnel is going to tear Through all those who love you. That's what sin does. And this is what we see in the text. Look at verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved who? The the church. It was the church that's suffering. Church, I, I want you to know this. If you have unrepentant sin, if you even have sin that you're not even aware of in your life, do you know who's really feeling the hurt? It's the people who love you. They're being grieved by this. And the devil looks at that and he smiles. <laughs> Sin and sorrow from which he will cause division. Look, look what we have next. Failure to show grace means that sinners will always feel condemned. I want you to know the danger of this. In fact, we already have, uh, I mentioned this verse already in, in Romans 5. Paul says, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase, but where sin increase, read it with me, grace increase all the more. Boy, that's not the world we live in, is it? That is just not the world we live in. When, when you sin, let me tell you what. I'm going to remind you as often as I can because that puts me at a higher level than you. That is, that is not thinking like Christ, that's thinking like the world. And as long as we fail to show grace, and there is a bit of an asterisk on here. If I put a footnote, it would be for those who are repentant. If you're continuing in your sin, you may not even be a Christian. That's a completely different discussion. 
But if you have the Holy Spirit, by the way, you're still going to sin. He who says he's without sin deceives who? Not me. We know. We all see. You think you're without sin. You lie into yourself. And so you're going to have sin as a Christian when you do. If you don't have the body of Christ willing to come and repair that through grace, you will only feel condemnation. And this gets expressed, number one, this way. Shame on you if you've ever said this. Well, I forgive you, but I'll never. Shame on you. That is not God's grace. Isaiah tells us that he remembers our sins no more. And that's not like God to forget. I'm pretty sure he's got a good memory, right? I'm pretty pretty sure he could. So what kind of forgetting are we talking about here? We're talking about an intentional forgetting. If, If we do not show grace, what you will have is sinners who will only feel condemned. And we know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are literally stealing from the glory of Jesus who gave his life and blood to forgive your sins. If you say something like, well, I'll forgive, but I will never forget because the devil will use that. He will use it to divide the church. Number two, conflict and confrontation. Look with me back in verse seven. In fact, six says that the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So in verse six, you have church discipline. You have the people of God, those who are wounded, those who are grieved and in sorrow. They bring this sinner in and they say, look, man, we want you to turn from this. And if he says no, then we say, then we can't just, we can't have you come in here thinking you're saved because you're not. And the majority confronts. There's confrontation. There's a conflict that happens. Now, raise your hand if you like confrontation. That's what I figured. Those of you who know me, between Emily and I, who's the more confrontational do you suppose? She hates confrontation. Most of us hate confrontation. And rightly so, because you know what happens most often with confrontation? The devil slips in. Here's what this looks like in your life. I'm going to preach to myself so I don't offend any of you. But if you come to me with a conflict, do you know what I'm most tempted to do? Deny it. If you come to me with a conflict, something that I did, do you know what I'm most tempted to do? Defend myself. I don't want to listen. Do you want to listen? Is that how you guys are a little bit? That's how I am. And do you know what we just got? Do you know what we just found? There's a little bit of division. Just started right there. There was... uh, There was a man who used to come to this church. I knew him. I talked with him, met at that table years and years ago. And then COVID happened. And he had a particular stance on what he thought best to do. And walked into this church. And there was someone who brought some confrontation. And this man has never been back. Now, I talked to him in the parking lot and I, and I said, look, have you ever gone to that person? Have you ever gone and said, hey, when you said this, it really hurt. Well, this is the answer. Well, I don't need to go to them. What do you mean you don't need to go to them? That's what God, that's what God tells us to do. But how quick are we obedient to do that? Come on, be honest, church. This, this feel a little uncomfortable for you right now? Because it should. Because we're terrible at this. It, we're terrible at trying to repair and reconcile those trespasses we make against one another. And COVID revealed it all. Thank goodness by his grace, for the most part, we're past this. But I want you to know that through conflict and confrontation, here's what the devil will do. Failure 
of restoration means sinners will start to congregate. I don't need to go there anymore. I'm going I'm to separate myself and I'm going to go somewhere else. Or I'm going to find some people who, who want me around. Because they're glad that I came. And, and I can see that our troubles are all the same. And I want to be where everybody knows my... You guys used to watch Cheers? <laughs> By the way, where was that gathering? Not a church. Not a church. Shame on us. Shame on us. If we do not seek to restore the sinner, they're going to find somewhere else to congregate. And what will the devil do? He will divide. All right, so if you look back in verse 7, here's what you're told to do. Verse 7 says, Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he won't be overwhelmed by excess sorrow. It still grieves me that that gentleman is not coming back to our church because he was overwhelmed with excess sorrow, of which was partly our fault, of which is partly his fault. And the devil has worked division in our church. Thirdly, how does the devil scheme division? Through misunderstanding and miscommunication. Man, you ought to just chalk this up as number one in your marriage right now. Misunderstanding, miscommunication, I got a text this week from a friend of mine who is going through an issue with a family member and, and he just wanted me to know, look, if, if I haven't been clear on this, here's how I feel on it. It was a, it was a nice long text message. You ever get those long ones? And I, don't worry, I wrote back a nice long one back too. But I, it's because I was thankful. Because do you know where the devil will come to sow division? Where there's misunderstanding. And where there is miscommunication, that's where the devil will come in and sow division. I know this all too dearly because my job is essentially communicating. And there have been times where I've even preached a message and gone back and someone heard something completely different from what I meant them to hear. And so don't think for a minute that the devil is not right hard at work to try to divide us. Through misunderstanding. Look, if it's not clear, if you heard it one way, come and talk to me. Do you know the very worst way to talk to somebody? It's through a text message. If you're confused, call them. Knock on their door. If, if, if something's not sounding right to you. I mean, it depends on the relationship. If the relationship's really close, some emojis will work. That's fine. If, you were, if I were to give you my phone right now and you were to look through my wife and I's uh, message history. Do you know what you're going to see? There, there's a lot of little comments, but more than that, many times through the day is just a little heart. Let me let me hear it. <laughs> she, she'll she'll send me a little heart, and I'll send her one right back. And and do you know what that's communicating? It just means I'm thinking about you. That's all it means. And we're good. That's all it means. So if your relationship is close, that'll be fine. You can, you can communicate in that way. But listen, this is the key part. If there's some friction, you know those moments, the moments I was telling you about before where I want to defend myself, if you have some friction, you really should have coffee with that person. You really should. You need to see their humanity and you need to be humbled and remember that they're just a person. What you said might have been wrong. You can own that. I might have been wrong. I've been wrong many times. And you've got to make sure that the devil doesn't have room because if we don't do this right, failure to communicate, Failure to communicate means Satan will come in to confuse. Satan will sneak in. 
He was sneaking right there. And what you said wasn't this. And what you, by the way, some of you need to just forget what people say sometimes. Some of you with these memories. This is what you said. I'm like, I don't remember at all saying that. (sighs) But if you don't communicate it well, the devil will, that's what he's trying to do. The devil's trying to do this. He's trying to bring confusion. And when we do not communicate well, that's where it's going to show up. In fact, it showed up in the garden. Every week we've tried to look at this. I want you to show you again. Genesis 3. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Did you catch it? The miscommunication. It was right there. We probably miss. We probably miss it. Something was miscommunicated right there. In fact, I want to just show you when God spoke to the humans, who did God speak to, the man or the woman? God spoke to the man. And here it is, Genesis, um, this is what Eve says in 3.3, you must not, she's, she's relaying the message, you must not eat the fruit that's in the middle of the garden, you must not touch it or you will die, but this is what God said to Adam. You must not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. What's missing from what Eve said? What's missing? Which tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She left that part out. What got inserted? You must not touch it. Did God say that? Who said that? It was Adam. Remember, Eve is just repeating what she heard. God told it directly to the man. God spoke directly to the man, which is why the devil didn't go to the man. Imagine this. If the devil went directly to the man. (laughs) Beth, we love it. Let him run. Someone will scoop him up here. Don't worry. You guys will scoop him up. All right. If the devil went to the man and said, did God say, what could the man say? Yeah, I was there. I was there. I heard it directly. That's why the devil doesn't go to the man. He went to the woman because the woman had to hear it from the man. And when the man communicated it, he left out a little piece and he inserted a little piece, which is why the Bible is very clear at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of the book of Revelation. Do not add to the words of God and do not take away. Do not subtract from the words of God. So I just wanted I wanted to show you that. Yeah, that right there was added. And a failure to communicate is going to confuse. Was, was Eve confused? Yeah. yeah. And that led to deception. And by the way, I don't have the slide up here because I'm pretty sure you can figure it out. Do we see division in the garden? Division after they eat because the man and the woman do what? They divide themselves from God. This is exactly the temptation God will put over you when you need to be in church. You're going to be like, I don't really want to go today. That's the devil working on you. That's the place you should be. Adam and Eve should have went directly to God, but instead they hid division. And then God goes to the man and said, did you blah, blah, blah? And the man says, where's the next division? Between the people. And the devil is smiling from ear to ear. If we, if we, if we misunderstand this is what happens. And I want you to see this is what happened in our text. This is why I didn't stop in verse 11. Look with me back in the text. He says in verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And then Paul carries on to talk about his travels. 
Which for you and I might be like, why are you telling us your itinerary, Paul? What does that matter? And it matters because Paul was waiting for Titus. Titus was over on um, the west side of the Aegean Sea. He was coming from Corinth. And Titus was just ministering to the church there. Paul is dying to hear how things are going with them. He knows there's been conflict. Oh, I hate when there's conflict. If you want to ruin my entire week, just bring me some conflict. Like that, and that's what Paul's going through. Look with what, look what me in the text. He says, um, verse 13, I still had no peace of mind. But Paul has no rest in his heart. And so what does he do? He, he says, well, I, we're going to leave Troas and we're going to go over the Aegean Sea, probably through Philippi, and try to make our way there because he can't find Titus. In fact, our story kind of gets paused here. I want you to hold your spot here in chapter 2. And I want you to just fast forward with me over to chapter 6. Sorry, chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because here's, here's the, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. So in 1 Corinthians, or sorry, in 2 Corinthians 7, look with me starting in verse 5. Because Paul's going to pick up this like itinerary travel part. Verse 5 says, when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. So there it is again, right? The division, the conflict, it is ruining his week. But we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. There he is. They found him. Remember, Titus was coming from Corinth. What does Titus say? Verse 7. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet, Now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. And so you were not unharmed by us. You were not harmed by us in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Do you see what happened? Do you see the rest of the story? Paul finally got together with missionary Titus, who was coming from Corinth. They got together and the message finally got relayed to Paul. Look, the church loves you. Because what was Paul thinking? They hate me. Those guys must hate me over there. Paul's like, I have no peace in my heart because I'm trying to be Jesus to them. I'm trying to bring confrontation, but the devil is getting into this thing and he's trying to divide us from one another because there was misunderstanding or there was some form of miscommunication and Titus helped bridge that gap so that there was no longer any miscommunication. Church, I want you to know this one is huge and you're really bad at it so (laughs) but i'm with you i'm also in that boat too i mean i mean you as in human beings so okay all right fourthly pride and profit if you're back with me in chapter two he 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 walks through this amazing understanding of his calling as jesus leads him in verse 14 he talks about he's, he, he and his, uh, his missionary companions, they're the aroma of Christ. Wherever they go, all we smell is Jesus. Everywhere we go. It has a dividing factor that we're going to look at in just a moment. But look with me in verse 17. Because Paul's going to compare himself to another historical problem in the church. There are some people in Corinth who are trying to undercut the Apostle Paul and make themselves 
the apostle. In fact, they call themselves super apostles. You can read about that when you get to chapters 11 and 12. Look, look, with, as, look how he addressed them in verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. Because that's what they're doing. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. If you want to see division show up in a church, just make decisions based on pride or profit. It's going to, it's going to hurt us all. It's going to divide us. This, by the way, is not a unique issue. This has shown up in many places throughout the New Testament. Let me just give you uh, some examples of that right after this. Failure to put others first will result in a collapse. Jesus said it already. A house divided will not, will not stand. James 3 says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition, two expressions of pride, if you harbor that in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom doesn't come down from heaven. It is earthly, unspiritual. It comes from who? It comes from Satan. It's the devil's work. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. So yeah, in a church where we are so smug and proud of our own virtue, do you know what that's going to do to us? You're going to have all kinds of disorder happening in this church. And the devil will sit back and smile. Uh, Paul says it to the Galatian church this way. He says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by who? By each other. And so whose fault is this? Yeah, the devil's there in the shadows. He's in the shadows, but all he has to do is give you a nudge because of your pride, and you and I take care of the rest to divide the church. And so I want you to see these four observations. Two very quick Conclusions. Number one, Jesus unites and divides according to destiny. And we unite and divide according to the devil's schemes. Jesus unites and he divides according to your identities, according to your destiny. In fact, look with me again, if you're still with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look again what Paul says as he talks about being the fragrance. Verse 15, he says... For we are to God the aroma of, of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Do you see the two identities? Who do we have? One group, those who are being saved, and a second group, those who are perishing. And how does Jesus divide? Look at the next verse, 16. To one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. I want you to know, God has divided. And when he does so, he does so that you will live. I actually think that you need to know we're in a season of division. And I don't mean here at Grace. I mean the church as a whole. We're in a season of division. There was a time where there was only the universal faith. It's called Catholic. And one particular expression of that universal faith was Roman Catholic. And around the time of Martin Luther, God said, you know what? This is getting pretty unhealthy. And so he caused division. So we didn't continue further. And thankfully, some of those well-meaning Catholics at that time also decided to bring some internal investigation and revisit some of their teachings. Uh, some of you are thinking, preach, brother. And I'm thinking, I don't have time to go further on that. <laughs> but then what happened? Then what happened to the church? Then we divided into four. 
Anglican and Lutheran and Anabaptist and Reformed. And then what happened? And then we divided again. And then we divided again. And we are not right now in a season of division. There, there is a division that God brings so life can be maintained. And then there's a division that we do according to the devil's schemes. Division that's based on sin and sorrow, conflict and confrontation, misunderstanding and miscommunication, and pride and profit. And you and I got to learn the difference between those two. That's what this is all about. So how do we do it? What can you, what, what does God tell you and I to do? What's the counterattack? Everybody see the scheme? You see what's coming against you? I, when I was playing basketball, I didn't even have to play defense against those idiots because they were dividing themselves. So what do we do? How do we keep from being divided like that? And I want to give you, the first thing is what Jesus says, you need to practice forgiveness like Jesus. Look with me back into the text. Verse 7. Now instead, you ought to forgive. If you're in the habit of writing in your Bible, you should underline that. You ought to forgive. Verse 10, if you forgive, I also forgive. And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ. How many times does he need to repeat it before we learn? You, you want to maintain unity for life in the church? You've got to learn how to forgive. And you've got to forgive like Jesus. And there's a key word I put on this, which is practice. Because you don't do it very well the first time. And you forget. And then when it's easy, it's easy. And when it's hard, you don't. You've got to practice forgiveness. A couple of verses that we'll see. I want you to track with me too, because we're going to be in Colossians 3 a couple of times. Paul says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against somebody, forgive how? As the Lord forgave you. And so I want you to know, true forgiveness starts by owning it yourself. Do you remember what Joe Kriegel did? Unlike any other teenager, when he did something wrong, what did he do? It was me. It was me. I did it. I watched Joe do that. And I carried that same sort of practice down into the islands. And I started to do the same thing. I did it. That was me. Because you will never know how to forgive the person who trespassed against you unless you first know your own need for forgiveness. And so it starts there. It starts by you recognizing, I need to be forgiven. And if I'm willing to receive it from God for my sin, I got to be willing to extend it to the person who sinned against me. Because no sin that they've done against you is greater than your offense against the Almighty God. Um, If you didn't catch it enough here, it's in Ephesians 4 too. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. How? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. You you know I could go a whole other sermon just on that one point. Number two, practice encouragement like Jesus. Look with me again into the text. Not only do we have forgive, but in verse seven, it says, now instead you ought to forgive and comfort. You guys see that? Again, worth underlining. This is the the point where you're not allowed to say, well, I forgive, but I never ever. You screwed it up. That's not how it works. That's no encouragement. Seriously, you're going to forgive me, but you're going to hold it over me my whole life? That's not forgiveness. I need, the, I need the opposite of that. I need, you to, I need you to comfort me. I need you to show love. Because that's what God did for me. That's what he does for you. And so we have to practice this. Um, we in this world, the devil is so busy. So many people are starving for encouragement. People are starving for it. 
I, I was just moved by the Spirit of God the other day to just send a quick little text to somebody who I knew, know is serving behind the scenes. You'll never know who it is. They don't want you to know. They're serving behind the scenes. And they're almost in tears to hear, thank you. Thank you for noticing. I didn't know anybody noticed. Church, we're, we're anemic when it comes to encouraging one another. Why would we be so lax on our willingness to just give hugs and say, I'm so thankful for you. You are, you are such a blessing to me. We need to encourage because that's what the text says. Verse seven, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so we have to practice encouragement again from Colossians three and over all these things. This is the next verse, by the way. We just read verse 13. Here's 14. And over all these things, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Got to love one another. Uh, Micah and I went out hunting Yesterday, it's the youth weekend. That's where we're going after church. So if you don't see me, that's where we're going. And my boy had, sorry, pal, I got to tell the story. He's shaking his head. I didn't ask permission. (laughs) The kid had three bucks in front of him last night. Three bucks. And we're losing light. And, and, and he's, he's got the right, remember, it's, it's the youth hunt. This is, he's 15. So this is his last time. Today's his last time to get there before the rest of you hunters. He's got, the, he's got the crosshairs right on him, but the deer aren't turning broadside. They're not giving him a target. And so he's waiting. And he's waiting. And then they, they turn and they're gone. <laughs> Three bucks. <laughs> and I see this poor kid walking to me. I'm hearing the music. <laughs> I got to tell him, it's okay. It's okay. I bet. You ever been there? You ever, been, you ever feel low? What does the world want to do? You dummy. Yeah. You lost your down. Never happened. Yeah. Don't be like that. You, you see someone walking in a little low to church? Put your arm around them. Tell them, don't worry. We're, we're together. We're with you on this. We need to encourage one another. Again, in Ephesians, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So love. Lastly, practice restoration like Jesus does. Practice restoration. Look with me again in verse eight. He says, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm. That is restore. Restore them back. Church, listen, you are going to sin. I hate to tell you it's going to happen. (laughs) And you got to deal with it. And if that sin is something that hasn't been directly against one of us, we're thankful. Thanks for that. But when it is, we got to make sure the devil doesn't come in to divide us. The next verse in Colossians says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of how many bodies? There's just one church. Members of one body, you were called to peace. And that's what it means to practice restoration. It means to bring in that person and to say, we're a family. We're with you. Let us reaffirm our love for you. That's what the apostle Paul does when he adds this little statement at the end, for we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. He will not outsmart us. You got it, church? You with me? Give me an amen. Amen. All right, let's pray together this morning.